0: Um, we're in our series entitled 1 Timothy. We are plugging along. You can go to our website, listen to past sermons to catch yourself up. But here it is in a real quick nutshell. There is the Apostle Paul, this guy who really loves Jesus, who is in like the fourth quarter of his life. He's towards the end of his life, and he's been discipling and raising up a younger pastor by the name of Timothy, which you probably could have guessed. And he writes Timothy two letters um, that become 1st and 2nd Timothy. Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus a massive, mega-cultural city. There's a lot of stuff going on. And Paul is writing to him how to structure the church and what this thing called Christianity and the church is. And he's talked about leaders and what the church should do when they're gathered together, all kinds of stuff. Last week, the Apostle Paul sort of really kind of shifted tones a little bit. And he talked about how Christians struggle when there are massive, big cultural beliefs that just society in general sort of believes and goes with. And then there is the gospel message, um, Christianity itself, what God has spoken and said. And Paul said that the tendency for Christians is to try to take those two concepts and sync them together. And what ends up happening is is you pollute God's pure message. And Paul talked a lot about contamination. And so this is the review that we learned last week that Christians are called to keep the gospel pure from the enemy's pollution. Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul talked a lot about how there will be a lot of people who pledged their allegiance to Jesus, but when push comes to shove, and Jesus and his word says, you can't sync my message with that cultural belief. There will be a lot of Christians who actually depart from the faith, Paul says. He tells Timothy, don't be surprised by that. But we said this, that we depart from Jesus by devoting ourselves to what Paul called the doctrine of Demons which is like heavy stuff, okay? Like, it's like, wow, Paul, how do you really feel about it, okay? But here was the central concept. Nobody just departs from Jesus and walks away without first devoting or attaching themselves to something that Jesus has not blessed. And so today, Paul gets really personal with Timothy, And it's not about leaders, it's not about church structure. What today is about is about Timothy's personal walk with the Lord. What Paul is really concerned about primarily is not just um, the church as a whole, how it's structured, this, that, and the other. What Paul is concerned about is Timothy's personal relationship and journey, discipleship, godliness with Jesus. And maybe this will help as an introduction. This is a picture of Malcolm Gladwell, who has a goofy haircut, okay, right? It's just what you see. You got to kind of acknowledge it while it's there. This guy is really smart, more degrees than Fahrenheit. He's a best-selling author. Um, This book, Outliers, was the book that really sort of shot him to fame. He's got a great podcast where he tells all kinds of stories. But the concept behind the book, Outliers, is simply this. Um, Let's say in professional sports, basketball, baseball, um, whatever it is, football, um, those professional athletes are just not your average human beings. Um, That group of people are professional athletes. They're great at what they do. But even in that sector, there are people who seem to just be outliers They're they're not just professional athletes, they are like incredible at what they do. Michael Phelps, for example, the most decorated Olympian in history. I mean, it's incredible to go to the Olympics, but, but Michael Phelps is an outlier in and of itself. So in the book, what he does is, he goes on a journey. And he just goes, okay, what makes these great people great? at what they do. It's a fascinating read. He comes up with a concept and coins a phrase that's very popular, and you've probably heard it. It's called the 10,000-hour rule. And here's what Malcolm Gladwell says. Researchers have settled on what they believe is the magic number for true expertise. 10,000 hours. The thing that distinguishes one performer from another is simply how hard he or she works. That's it. And what's more is the people at the very top don't work just harder or even much harder than everyone else. They work much, much, much harder. And in the book, he uses, as an example, the Beatles. And so this mop-top group does their very first performance on the Ed Sullivan Show. It's the first time us in America got exposed to the Beatles. And in the book, he says this, when we saw the Beatles for the very first time, the response is simply, wow. Wow. Those young men are extremely gifted at what they do. They've always played instruments like that. They've always been that good. But through Malcolm Gladwell's research, he said, that's actually further from the truth. Long before they ever premiered on the Ed Sullivan Show, he calculates that they played close to 10,000 hours of small, tiny shows in dive bars that nobody has ever heard of. Simply translated, Malcolm Gladwell says, the outliers, the people who are great at what they do, there is, well, I'll just read it. He summarizes the book with this sentence. Success is not a random act. Success is not a random act. Now, the Apostle Paul uses the exact same analogy today in our passage. I want you to look at verses 7 and 8. Paul says this, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Here it is. Rather... Train yourself for godliness. That's the main phrase in the surrounding verses. Everything else hinges on train yourself in godliness. And then he uses this analogy. For while bodily training is of some value, so he's talking about working out. So all of you CrossFitters, P90Xers, Kale Eaters, this is your sermon. This is it today, right? Bodily training is of a lot of a value godliness is of a value in every way. Now, this word train, train yourself in godliness, it's the Greek word where we get our English word gymnasium from. So, no doubt, Timothy, who is in Ephesus, which had one of the seven wonders of the world, also would have had a gymnasium where the Greeks would have practiced and trained for the Greek games. So here's what Paul's saying, hey Timothy, in your walk with Jesus, what those men and women do in there, in that gym, is also what you must do in your spiritual life as well. I love what one commentator said, he said these words, the successful Christian life is always, without exception, a stripped down, disciplined, sweaty affair. The understanding that vigorous spiritual discipline is essential to godliness. And in accords with the universal understanding that discipline is necessary to accomplish anything in this life. Translation, please don't miss this and hear me out. Nobody, nobody just drifts into godliness. Nobody just sits back passively in their walk with Jesus and grows in godliness and Christ-likeness. Paul uses the analogy that they put in work, and the same is true for the Christian life. So listen, I'm going to give you an equation that I believe that if I were to have a cup of coffee with every one of you in here, at some point in the conversation, what would arise is, you know, I just, in my relationship with Jesus, I just want it stronger. But, you know, I kind of pray a little bit on the way to work. You know, I listen to Christian radio here and there. But, man, there's, I just, there's a bit more in my relationship with Jesus. I would look you in the eye, and here's what I would say. This is the equation in what Paul is telling us. The gospel, the gospel, this is the good news of what God has done. The gospel is not advice. This is what God does. The gospel is not about what you need to do. It's about what God has done. That the creator of the universe has become a human being in the person of Jesus Christ, lived the life that you and I could not live, a perfect life and then died the death that you and I deserve because we fall short of this perfect God's standard, and then three days later rose again and now offers eternal and everlasting life to anyone who repents and turns from their sin and gives their life back to God. That's good news, amen? That's what the gospel is, yes, Now, the gospel plus discipline, and I know that is a dirty word in 2023, okay? But think about it like this. This is what God does. And in response, this is what we do. Discipline equals godliness. And I know kind of what you're thinking already before the sermon's really started. You're going, great. I came on the day where the preacher is going to tell me a ton of stuff that I need to be doing, and I am already maxed out in my life. Our schedule, our family schedule, I mean, we're not even home any night of the week this night. We've got this. I'm trying to pick up extra hours here. I am maxed out. There's not more that I can do please listen to me, and this is really what undergirds everything because you can walk out of here and misinterpret what I'm saying. Here's what Paul is telling Timothy, and this is a wild concept for us. Your priorities in your life, you have control of. You control your priorities in your life your priorities do not have to dictate and determine your own life and this is especially true in the Christian life because what I see so much are people who have their life and they have their life plan and we've got it all out, we're going to do this, and then in the end we're going to retire and we're going to get an RV or maybe build one of them little tiny homes. I love them tiny homes. I see it all the time. And then we're going to do this and we're going to go here and then we're going to get the boat and the stuff and then, you know, uh, God bless us. God bless us, and like the country song says, you just throw a little money in the offering plate at church, and that's what your Christian life accounts for. And and what happens is we try to attach Jesus to the rest of our life. And can I just tell you something? That's exhausting because Jesus is Lord of the cosmos. Jesus doesn't do well with negotiations. I I don't know if you found that out before, right? And so I I love what one commentator said. And just fair warning, this quote is a little stout, but I think it's very important and gets to the heart of what we're talking to. Some people say you can't expect laymen or volunteers to raise families, work all day, and lead or volunteer at a local church. But this simply isn't true. Many people raise families, work, and give substantial hours of time to community service, clubs, athletic activities, and or religious institutions. The cults have built up largely lay movements because of volunteers and their members. And we, Bible-believing Christians, are becoming lazy soft, pay-for-it-to-be-done group of Christians. It is positively amazing how much people can accomplish when they're motivated to work for something they love. I've seen people build and remodel houses in their spare times. I've also seen men and women discipline themselves to gain a phenomenal knowledge of the Scriptures. The real problem then Lies not in man's limited time and energy, but in the false ideas about work, Christian living, life's priorities, and especially Christian ministry. The gospel plus discipline equals godliness. We will not passively drift into a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. And so here's what I want to do. I want to continue in Paul's analogy of physical training that he uses with Timothy. And there are two primary things you can ask a personal trainer, a gym rat, or whatever it is. There are two main things that there are no substitute for. The first one is what we eat, and the second one, is how we exercise. That's it. There's no substitute to it. And one of the things in the Christian life that we think is, man, if I could just read that book, or gosh, if I could just get with pastor and talk with him, and then he'll give me the advice because he has a direct line to God, okay? Right, and so do you, all right? And we think that somewhere along the way that there's got to be a shortcut. And I'm here to tell you today, there is no shortcut for discipline. And so we're going to start with the very first thing that Paul starts with, what we eat. What do we take in to our life spiritually, the same way that we look at physically? Now, I want to look at what Paul tells Timothy not to eat. So we're going to look at, we need to eliminate what I call spiritual Junk food, okay? Look at verses 6 and 7. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Oh, wow. I would love to be a good servant. How do I do that? Being trained. There's the word again. Trained. Well, what should I train myself in? In the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Verse 7 have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Um, In the original language, the term irreverent, silly myths actually translates old wives' tales, right? He's telling Timothy, there are distractions everywhere. And the same way, we got to be honest about this, the same way that we sort of crave sometimes just that I'm going to turn my brain off and dive into the pool of high fructose corn syrup, right? I mean, you give me one of those Reese's eggs or Reese's pumpkins and praise be to God, Jesus can return, man. I mean, this is good stuff. Nobody denies that it doesn't taste good, right? Right. It's just that it's junk food. There's no nourishment there. And the same way that we have to eliminate things out of our diet, we also have to eliminate things out of our spiritual life. And so just um, I had some help with this with the staff. I just thought what are some what are some things that like just like it's midnight, everyone's asleep, you can't sleep and you're like I'm going to catch up on that Netflix show and eat an entire tub of bluebell ice cream, right? I'm just going to do it. What are what's some spiritual junk food in our Christian walk? And the staff came up with some of these. But how about this? The first one is this. The super-sized, supernatural meal, baby. And here's what I'm talking about. Um, pastor, the wind blew today. I was on my front porch, and the wind blew, and it blew the chimes. And that was Grandma speaking to me. Because Grandma made them chimes. Well, I, I think the wind blew. Yeah, right? Listen, um, question. Does the Bible... Talk about supernatural things. Oh, that was your spot. I'm going to do it again. It's okay. You can answer. You're in the sermon now. Does the Bible teach and talk about supernatural things? Yes, Yes, of course. But even in the pages of the Bible, the supernatural things are not so common. The Bible, I would argue, is way more concerned about your ordinary Monday Christian life. The following Jesus day by day. And Christians are oftentimes so distracted by constantly just chasing the supernatural and the ooh and ah. And here's what it is it's a distraction from the grind of what Paul is talking about. The supernatural, uh, super-sized meal. How about this one? Conspiracy corn dogs, baby, right? Gotta love you a good deep-fried conspiracy corn dog. I mean, listen, okay, listen. I get it. It's 2023, and it's weird out here, people, okay? There is weird stuff happening. Like, Even, like, hearings in our White House about aliens, and it's just like, what is going on? But can I remind you of something? Um, The Da Vinci Code is in the fiction section at Barnes & Noble. And what Christians like to do is we love to take a good conspiracy and put it in the nonfiction section and go deep down the rabbit hole and you are like 13 internet tab pages deep, man, on stuff, right? And listen, what it is is like eating cotton candy. You get a little sugar rush and you think, ooh, wow, and there's no nourishment. Um, How about the third thing? Not just conspiracy gumballs or or, or gossip gumballs, not just conspiracy corn dogs. Gossip gumballs, baby, right? Love chewing on those things. You know what's very interesting to me in the Bible? Um, Is that when it talks about the new Christian life, like Colossians 3, like put off the old life, put on the new life in Christ. Do you know what is Almost always the example of the new life are words. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, encouraging one another. Our words are a window into our heart. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. But we cover it up by prayer requests, and things like that. Because what it does is it takes the focus off ourself and it dives into someone else. How about this last one? I love this one. Deep fried fear. Oh, man. Just dunk it twice, baby. You know, deep fried fear. Can I tell you something Um, to be aware of? There is a pattern, and if you hear this pattern, you need to run. And the pattern is this. Oh no, there's doom and gloom. It's all coming to an end. Your grandbabies, your babies, we're all dying. They're brainwashing you. Don't leave your house. Get in the bunker. Watch out. But I have the answer. Vote for me, right? Anybody that uses fear-mongering as a motivation, is a false gospel. Christians don't walk around in fear. On the contrary, Jesus says, when the end comes, hold your head up high because your hope draweth nigh. Listen, this is fun. We just kind of laugh at it just to kind of teach a point. But how many of us have these things in our regular diet? And what Paul is saying is, You've got to eliminate that. But listen, we don't just eliminate things like in a good diet. You don't just remove it. You replace it with something. So we eliminate spiritual junk food, and then we this. We eat God's word. We eat God's word. Look at verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Listen, it is no mistake that the parallel... All through the pages of Scripture, the Bible describes itself as bread from heaven. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, when Jesus is being tempted by the devil, he says, man should not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true and is a refuge for those who seek shelter in it. The Word of God constantly talks about feeding ourselves with it just like we eat regular food. That literally around lunchtime or dinnertime, when when your stomach starts to rumble, what if we thought in such a way, have I fed my soul today? Have I fed my soul today? And, And can you hear me on this? Never in the history of Christianity, has the word of God been so readily available to its people? I mean, ever, ever, free Bibles everywhere. You can. It, there are apps that will read the Bible to you while you sleep. I think you should do it while you're awake, but that's fine too. Like whatever it is, never has the word of God been so readily available yet so not accessed by God's people. And I read this week that people who suffer from starvation in third world countries, I didn't know this. No one ever rarely dies from, quote, starvation. Almost everyone dies from the effects of starvation. And what's the primary effect? Disease. Because a lack of food lowers your body's immunity to fight off disease and decay. And when I read that this week, I felt like the Lord just slid into my DMs and said, Jason, so many of my people are suffering from disease and malnourishment, and they think it's something else, and all it is is a lack of my word. So listen, we've got Bible reading, we've got all kinds of stuff. I am not beating you over the head with to do. There are things you've got to do. There's heavy lifting no one else can do for you. But listen, here's where it starts. I want you to pray this. Hey, what if... Here's a challenge, right? All you type A winners, here's a challenge, all right? What if you prayed this every single morning this week, seven days? It's in the form of a question. But when is the last time I asked God for a hunger for his word? Every day, seven days, God, give me a hunger for your word just to desire God And that when 10 or 11 o'clock rolls around and you've got that snack, maybe you put post-it notes on your little lunch pail there at work, have you fed your soul today? It's what we eat. We've got to eliminate the spiritual junk food, and we've got to feast on God's word. But here is the second thing. It's not just what we eat, but it's how we exercise, right? Right? I mean, you gotta burn off the calories somehow. Hey, just by a show of hands, really quick, um, who in here works out solely just so you can eat whatever you want, right? Awesome? Nobody, you're all liars. Great, okay, right? That's that, that's the only benefit that I see. I'm like, I'm just gonna work out, and man, when you look on the back of that Reese's egg and you're like, that's like three miles on the treadmill. Just ate six of them. No, I'm just kidding, right? Maybe, probably true. Lord, forgive me, right? Okay, but it's how we exercise. So, what does the exercise plan look like? The Apostle Paul's our personal trainer. Here we go. The first thing is this: you got to envision the goal. Envision the goal. Look at what he says in verses eight through ten. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Here it is as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance For to this end we toil and strive. Do you hear that language? It's labor language. We toil and strive because, here's the reason, why are we doing it, Paul? Because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Translation, here's what Paul's saying. We all have a goal when we start working out. Maybe it was the doctor was like, hey, listen. If you don't start eliminating some stuff and exercising, you're not going to see me. You're going to go see the corner, okay? And you're like, oh, my goodness, i got to get after this. Maybe it's a wedding. Maybe it's the vacation. Maybe, whatever it is, we always have a goal. And what Paul is saying is this. The same way that physical training shows your body benefits in this life, Every spiritual discipline that you do whether it's reading the Bible studying praying living in community serving whatever that is there is not a wasted second every single time you do that it doesn't just benefit you now because physical training has a limit what's the limit um death okay So love you, I know you work out and you're eating kale chips and doing all that stuff and, you know, uh, greens and you're doing saunas, that's great, you're going to die. Love you, glad you're here today, okay, right? But what Paul is saying is all of our spiritual disciplines carry over into the next life. It is a benefit, but we have to envision the goal. And the goal is that relationship with Jesus, The goal of following Jesus is Jesus. And no one naturally drifts close to Jesus. It's the opposite. We drift away. So we have to envision the goal. The second thing is this. You've got to embody your beliefs. Look at verses 11 through 13. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. I love this. So a lot of people think Timothy was really young when Paul first met him. And it seems to be that Timothy struggled with his age and the level of leadership that he was in. And Paul even says, don't shrink back from your gift, which tells me that Timothy had a tendency to become passive and shrink away by the fear of man. These verses are very near and dear to me. I was like 25 years old when I became pastor here at Westside. had two kids. I'd only been a member of one church, no seminary. And they were like, we'll take them. You know what I mean? It's Just like, and I clung to these verses for dear life. Because all I knew, guys, this is all I knew, was to grab the Bible, stand up, don't fear man, but fear God, say what it says, and then live it out. That was like my pastoral plan. I was like meeting with coaches. What's your 20 year plan? And it was like, to preach the Bible and live it. They were like, oh, well, we've got some work to do. It's all I knew to do because this universal principle. And listen, parents, this is, oh, parents, this is massively important for us because what we're trying to do as parents is we're trying to teach what we know, right? Yes, that's massively important, but I'm so sorry to tell you that that is like 10% of it. Literally, sitting in front of your kids, saying words, and teaching them something is about 10% of parenting. 90% of parenting is living what you're saying. We teach what we know. Don't miss this. We teach what we know We reproduce who we are. We teach what we know, but we reproduce who we are. And what Paul is telling Timothy is that you essentially have to practice what you preach. The third thing, you've got to execute the plan. All right. So we've envisioned the goal. We're embodying the beliefs. We are living this thing out. We've eliminated stuff. We've got it. And now we got to do it. Okay. Is anybody like me? I love making a plan to work out. I might even go shopping and buy some new workout clothes or something, right? I'm just getting some new workout shoes, doing some stuff like that, and now I'm not working out, right? And Paul says, no, 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 we've got to execute the plan. Look at verses 14 and 15. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Here it is, verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. The term practice these things is in the present imperative, which means continually practice. And by the way, when it says execute the plan, it doesn't mean that you do it perfect. Notice, Paul does not say, so when you do these things, everyone around you may see your perfection. It doesn't say that. He says that they may see your progress. Your progress. It's just stumbling forward to Jesus. And then the last thing is this. We've got to evaluate our progress. We've got to evaluate it. Look at the very, man, the way he ends this. Verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, You'll save both yourself and your hearers. You've got to take some spiritual inventory. And maybe that's what today is for some of us in the room. But do you know what I noticed? Paul says, um, keep a close watch on yourself. And it dawned on me. I think a lot of gossip and a lot of backbiting and a lot of slander would end if we kept a close watch on ourselves. You know why? Because when you're evaluating yourself, you don't really have a lot of time and energy to evaluate somebody else. And God hasn't called you to evaluate unless they invite you in someone else's spiritual progress. Primarily, it's yourself right now. Then through the community and iron sharpening iron, we open up that door. But how many of us are distracted Because it takes the focus off ourself. This is the exercise plan. This is how we do it. Because the gospel plus discipline equals godliness. As the band comes and leads us in a time of response, I want to read a very powerful quote. And it's written by a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Here's some fun history for you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian and pastor while Adolf Hitler was launching a world war. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer noticed something. He noticed that Hitler and his plan was to also infiltrate the churches and to brainwash the pastors as to preaching messages that would encourage what he was doing was God's plan for the world. Wicked stuff. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer did not bend his knee to this. He actually was executed by German soldiers because he would not bow his knee. But he noticed how it started. It wasn't just overnight. It was adrift. And he noticed that pastors changed their message and the gospel got tweaked as to how it infiltrated. Um, he coined a phrase... And the phrase he called it was cheap grace. Cheap grace. And he says these words cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without a cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. You see, costly grace is a treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all of his possessions. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble in any way. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave everything and follow Him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's a grace Because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs us our life. But it is grace because it gives us a whole new life. It is costly because it does condemn sin. And it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of His Son. For you were bought with a price. And what has cost God cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Listen, here's my fear. My fear is that many of us bought into the Christian life under cheap grace, and we've set back passively and then complained of our lack of godliness and Christ-likeness. But it is the gospel plus discipline which equals godliness. So here's our application today, just a few questions. The first one is this: How would I live differently if I saw my current trial as a training ground for godliness? Paul says that when Christians suffer, whether it's health or relational or emotional, whatever it is, that that suffering's not wasted, but that suffering produces something in us. How would you live differently? if you saw what was going on in your life as a training ground to make you more like Jesus. The second thing is this. Where are you asking other people to do the, quote, heavy lifting for you in your walk with Jesus? Here's what I mean. Just like someone lifting weights and you have a spotter who helps you sort of carry some of the heavy weight, they're just a spotter. They can't lift it for you and there's many of us in this room who God is calling us to a difficult obedience right now but what we're doing is we're running around distracted asking for more advice just gonna pray about it a little bit longer when all reality obedience is your responsibility and the outcome is God's responsibility and then the last thing is this Where have I made God's grace cheap? And I thought there was just some easy shortcut and way out of it. Let us not forget Westside. We worship a man who was murdered on a blood-stained cross. Our path is the same, but at the end of it is a God who is so glorious and so gracious to us So Father God, we come before you today asking for this desire, Jesus. God, we pray, mold us, make us like you. But in reality, you've given us some things for us to apply in our life. And God, I just pray for some people in the room today, maybe it's a word of comfort. Maybe the word for them today, those who are training in godliness, God, I pray that they would be encouraged and their encouragement is this, don't give up. Just keep showing up. Day after day after day, read that Bible. Day after day, keep praying for those babies. Day after day, keep sharing Jesus Christ even when we don't feel like it. And lo and behold, God, what we will find is that our feelings follow our actions. And then one day, you grace us with that love and that peace. But God, we confess there's days where we don't feel it. So God, for those people, I pray, keep showing up. Don't give up. Don't drift away. But God, for some of us, it's not just a word of comfort. It is a sweet word of conviction. Today, the text is kind of like going and getting a spiritual evaluation, just like we get physical checkups. And there's some things that we need to eliminate, and some things that we need to replace, and some things we need to get after. And God, I pray for the power of your Spirit, for you never call us to something that you have not first equipped us for. Our desire is to be more like you, Jesus. So God, may we lead the way with our discipline today. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.